0: Hello and welcome to the Let's Talk Transformation Podcasts. In this episode, we will be discussing the ever present partnership between digital and human and what it means for the future, the future of work and the future of humans. So I'm delighted to welcome Kate O'Neill, founder and CEO of KO Insights. Kate, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Kate, you're a, I'm going to put it in inverted commas for a moment, tech humanist. Your expertise comes from more than 25 years in tech in companies such as Netflix, but you also work with corporate and cultural leaders on crafting this path to long-term success by centering around the human element in digital transformation, but also in future readiness and improving... The human experience, uh, which has become something different now we've got so much technology, but improving this human experience at scale, but especially in tech environments. So, the data driven AI led interactions. And you've also authored three books on tech humanism, Pixels in Place, and your latest book, A Future So Bright. And let's start there because it is about the future and it is about creating a brighter future, but through humanity. So, for me, this is a topic that is or should be on every leader's agenda strategically. But can we start with the idea of a tech humanist, which I absolutely love. That's what drew me to your work, because I work a lot on the human dimension of digital, of course. So what is a tech humanist, Kate? Can you tell us what it is and what tech humanist thinking is for you?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think for me, tech humanist, and this is a term I coined seven, eight years ago. At this point, but I've been using it for a while to describe my perspective, and Mm. I found that it was very resonant with people. It seems that people were. I think there's this kind of ancient fear that we have of automation and of you know technology taking over our lives or of taking mm. over our humanity and to me the the object was to say look the reason why tech comes to scale you know meets the mass market is to meet business objectives it is not mm. because technology is so bad in and of itself so what we really have to do is reconcile the tech with humanity through the lens of business like we if we can get mm. business leaders to figure out how their objectives in business align with human objectives and human outcomes, and mm. then use that alignment to actually build technology around and, and amplify, you know, the data-driven and the algorithmically optimized technologies around that alignment between business objectives and human outcomes, then we're an awful lot closer to developing the kind of technology that will actually enhance our human experiences.
0: Mm. And, and that alignment is tricky, isn't it? Because what I'm putting behind the idea of alignment is as a leader, I understand the human part of what of what we're doing, but also the business part and the third strand, the digital part. So I, I understand what AI can do for my organization. I understand what big data can do for my organization. And I think if I don't, I'm not afraid to say it is my assumption, because only then can we find out what you're talking about. So it's interesting for me to put that question back to you in terms of this alignment what trends are you seeing with leaders in organizations and and how can they get to this alignment particularly if their inside stories i don't really understand data enough or AI enough or humans enough. Let's be clear.
1: Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> that last like one is that.
0: tricky. <laughs> yeah.
1: It's messy. It's always messy. <laughs> <laughs> we think the AI is the hard part. It's actually the humans that are tricky. Always. Uh, and it's the truth, actually. I think the, the human motives in business can often be very tricky to yep. to navigate and, and figure out how we're building technology to satisfy what, what might actually be, you know, kind of, human dynamics at play. Like if the, the CEO and the board can't get aligned on, you know, what they're measuring for or or how Mm. we're going to determine what success is, that's Mm. really a human dynamic. And it's one that has everything to do with communication and clarity and, you know, good goal setting, good decision-making and, and, and so on. One of the trends that I am seeing, you know, you asked about that is, um, that a lot of leaders right now are in this in this very hot hyper llm you know chat mm. gpt sort of driven moment that we're in that we've been in for about a year and a half now leaders i think are finding it very difficult to know how to execute appropriately in this mm. moment so mm. you know it's a challenge to figure out how to use AI well inside an organization, but it's also a challenge to know when to use AI. And I think a lot of leaders right now are feeling like, well, everything is changing so fast that if I deploy an AI-driven d- project, then in, in two months even, six months, it could be irrelevant as new technology comes out that you know we will have adopted this new thing. And my advice to clients is always, it's really not about the technology itself, you, the the work that you will have done as an organization to get clear and to get aligned and to get that communication happening is not going to go away after that two or six months that the technology okay. changes. Mm. Yeah, the cultural change is one of the biggest parts of digital transformation, mm. The the behavioral changes that need to happen. Uh, mm-hmm. So, even if you end up throwing away you 're not going to first of all, I doubt you 'll be throwing away a hundred percent of the technology transformation that you put in place mm-hmm. we We already know the direction that these things are headed, right so moving yourself in that direction is probably not a bad idea it 's not a loss. I think one of the things that uh, a misconception that leaders often have about transformation is that it is led by technology that you know that you start with saying. Mm, the cloud, the cloud sounds like Mm -hmm. a good technology. Let's do our digital transformation around that. And I had this as an employee for many years. I would get, you know, one day a a leader would come and slap a newspaper clipping down on my desk and go, what's our cloud strategy? (laughs) We don't have a cloud strategy. We have a strategy and cloud maybe fits into how we deploy and what we're doing around it. The way that sounds absurd is actually how it sounds absurd if you really think about how we're letting AI or algorithms or any of this lead the discussion around digital Mm -hmm. transformation. It Mm -hmm. should always be strategy driven. It should always be starting with thinking about what the business exists to do and is trying to do at scale and what people outside of the business are trying to achieve that we are actually serving them and helping them achieve by what we do. And the, mm. the clearer we can get on all that, the more we can then use data and technology to amplify the mm. the good of that and and really get more effective and more efficient and, mm. and
0: serve people better along the way. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it's almost the wrong starting point, although it's the starting point I see the most. So it's, oh, we need to do something with the cloud because we need to, because everybody's doing it. Oh, we need an AI strategy because, you know, FOMO type of thing. You know, if we don't have an AI strategy, we're not competitive, which is probably true. They're still starting from technology, a little bit like digital transformation is often about the legacy IT systems. And it's like, okay, but what about the legacy human systems? I mean, what, 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 how are you going to bring those two things together? And I often see people talking from a technological standpoint and not daring to say that they don't really understand. What AI can bring or what cloud can bring, and that it is part of a bigger picture, so yeah. how would you advise leaders to actually take on that conversation? I mean, clearly, I'm hearing from what you're saying, and it's what I'm seeing a red flag if you if the strategy start, conversation starts with we need to do something with cloud or we right. need to do something with ai
1: right this the strategy conversation should always start with what what I call organizational purpose yeah. and, and you know there's there's this notion that purpose. Is it, it's out there in in the world in this very fuzzy wuzzy fluffy. sort of you know <laughs> yeah like fluffy sort of context, but purpose is actually a really useful north star for mm. organizations. I talk about purpose as a very human concept because when you really get down to it, when you think about what makes humans human, it's not about creativity or problem solving because that can be done by non human animals and it can be done by machines. And it's not about, you know, our emotions or love or any of uh, compassion, like that's wonderful. It's a great attribute, but non-human animals can do that too. And we're also seeing machines able to simulate the behaviors that we associate with empathy or care. Mm, more and, more. Um, and yeah, yeah. We want to see that. I mean, that's a good thing for there to be, you know, uh, uh, robotic caregivers that can assist in, in assisted living kind of environments, that sort of thing, because mm. there is a shortage of, of those qualified caregivers. so you know we see that kind of thing what we're left with is you know what really is uniquely ours as humans and i always come back to meaning meaning is this core construct that we go through the world looking for and making up as we go we we mm-hmm. are meaning makers and meaning seekers and we thrive on meaning and mm-hmm. meaning takes shape in business as purpose and so when we think about it that way that is this really kind of core human condition that what we do in business is driven by our sense of what matters and what we're trying to accomplish. If we think about it that way, it's incredibly clarifying because we can distill all of our strategic you know, planning discussions mm. around what matters. And then we can think about innovation as what is going to matter mm. and that gives us this really helpful lens of what are we doing now and then what should we be planning for that sort of triangulates you know mm. our, our our movement toward what we believe the future looks like and how mm. can we get there in an in an in intentional way that this step today is actually a step in the direction of the future that we're actually trying to build so mm. that is the the piece that i think that Clients often miss is like you think you're making a decision for today, and you, you're like, "Well, we have to either choose between the decision for today or the decision for tomorrow," mm. and that's absolutely not true. Mm. You arrive at a decision, hopefully, that chimes with the future, that gives you some sense of you know where you're going in the future.
0: Mm. And do do you think that because if I look at the sense making uh, level mm. of of what we're talking about, often I've seen technology, however powerful. <laughs> being used as an excuse, if you like, to work more transactionally in organizations because you can get things done more quickly. Mm -hmm. So what are your thoughts around that? Because this technology is very powerful and will enable collaboration on lots of different levels through lots of concentric circles of an ecosystem. So you could say, okay, now we've got this tool, we can collaborate. Now I've got this, we can work on the same document. Now I've got this, I can, you know, let's look at Zoom or, you know, thank you, yeah. COVID, for what that accelerated yeah. in terms of people you would never have met or never right. have collaborated with without, without the, the sort of technological push. Right. So what do you see around in organizations around people using it like that? And are you in agreement that often it is used to make work more transactional as opposed to that, uh, yes, I, I think that's probably
1: a, a true trend. Like it is mm. a true observation that that trend does happen, and it may happen more often in organizations. are, you know, with the disruption you've talked about with COVID and and remote work, I think a lot of organizations are still sort of trying to get their sea legs, in a sense, yes. to understand how to you know navigate mm. that environment. What I draw from it, and what what wisdom I would share with leaders it comes from having worked at netflix in those early days mm. uh, having been there in 99 2000 2001 that sort of time frame and as one of the first 100 employees you know we're still a relatively small organization at that at that point we were all driven by one singular metric and we had a very clear understanding of what metric we were all trying to influence and it was at the time new user growth but we all had our own departmental metrics too each group had a metric that they were driving to that would support that mm. one so, you know sort of central mm. unifying metric and everybody we got together once a month and they rented out the Los Gatos movie theater and and wow. they had it for the day to show our slides up on the big screen and present you know our numbers so everybody presented their accountability numbers relative to the numbers that we were trying to achieve so it was a really very culturally relevant for our organization that we met in a movie theater. Everybody's eating popcorn and drinking soda while they're <laughs> yeah. watching the C- CFO present you know, metrics. But it was also an incredibly bonding and reinforcing kind of idea that this is why we're doing this so, so mm. that we can hit these numbers. Mm. And I think what that gives you, if you have that kind of clarity of what it is you're trying to do, why you are trying to do it, what, why it matters and what's going to matter, then everybody in the organization can make their transactional decisions you know with the technology they can yeah. they can automate what needs automating they can you know not automate what what can't yet be automated they can do everything in a very intentional way so as to hit the metrics that are actually in support of those sort of singular unifying metrics so that everybody is focused in the same direction using the technology to whatever degree it's appropriate to use it. And I think, you know, one thing I wanted to, to add to our, some of our earlier conversation is I also want to make sure that I'm not being unclear, that I don't think, I do think that uh, organizations should experiment with new technologies. I don't think it should lead the transformation effort yes. when a mm. new AI tool comes out and everybody's all gung-ho about it. And all of a sudden everything is ChatGPT. we got to have mm. a chat GPT strategy. No, you don't have to have a chat GPT strategy, but everybody should be trying to experiment with it and understand how it works and how it might suit what you're trying to do. When you have this kind of experimental culture and people are trying out new things because they know that what they're trying to do ultimately is hit their metrics, hit mm-hmm. their goals in support of the, the larger goal, then they have the opportunity, you know, some wiggle room to try new things and put new diff- new sort of devices or tools or whatever in mm-hmm. place. And if, they, if it looks like they're going to be able to be successful or that it might require sort of larger implementation or overhead, then that conversation can happen that way. But it's always driven by that sense of strategic organizational purpose. And yeah. then the the experimental culture can backtrack into that and say, "Look, I think we have a way that we can accelerate toward that strategic organizational purpose."
0: Yeah, so they can do like small proofs of value or proofs of concept to yes. explore what works for them, what doesn't. But th- and it was very clear that that shouldn't be your driving force for the strategy and purpose of an organization. And if I come back to strategy and purpose and the bigger question, and you know, a bright future, put it that way. Mm. If, I, if I step up from the organization to society. Tech for good. We hear a lot about tech for good, particularly with the AI um, discussion around coding bias or not coding bias into what we do and, and how, how that affects societal decisions and, and ways of living. What are the possibilities you see moving forward there in tech for good? And first of all, what is tech for good for you? Because that's a little bit like AI. Everyone has their own definition, everyone has their own lens, which is great. But I'm really interested in what your lens is on tech for good and how you see that evolving.
1: Yeah, I think that the overall tech for good movement or concept uh, has encompassed a lot of different aspects or efforts, right? Mm. So there've been some actual community-led sort of hackathons, things like that, to try to create tools and systems that could serve people in in more sort of nonprofit sort of ways. Um, You've seen that sort of movement. You've also seen, you know, civic tech, you know, Mm -hmm. the, the types of projects that can help Governments or uh, NGOs help people, you know, with different kinds of services. But I think the bigger piece now seems to be, you know, the part of the conversation that's still relevant and, and is increasingly relevant in, uh, in and amidst these AI and automation conversations is the piece that relates to sort of responsible tech and, yeah. and tech ethics in general and how to think about, you know, going back to the business strategy discussion How do businesses deploy technology in support of their services or in their products in ways that are responsible, that do Mm. look at the the larger social picture, that do think about, you know, unintended consequences and trying to avoid them, that do think about sort of the communities downstream of the decisions Mm. that they're making and trying not to, you know, harm the communities that are downstream. So there's a lot of those types of decisions and discussions that have evolved out of, of, you know, sort of an overall sense of tech for good or responsible Mm. tech. And unfortunately what we've seen, the trend we've seen in the last year or two has been a number of the larger tech organizations dismissing their responsible tech organizations or tech Mm. ethics organizations right at the moment when AI is really gaining steam in the way that it's being deployed and used within organizations. Mm. So, That is a a distressing trend and one I hope to see reversed, although I think the principles of responsible tech should be all through the organization. Uh, Every organization, everybody in an organization should be approaching tech with the sense that we need to do it responsibly. And that that alignment piece is a key to it. You know, Mm -hmm. really thinking about how are we aligning what our business objectives are with what human outcomes will look like. And then the, the sort of corollary or the piece that helps really keep it true is to look outside to, I, I use, for example, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals mm-hmm. as a roadmap for how we can actually be sure we're driving toward a better, brighter future in the work that we're doing. We can do our business work and it can be for profit and it can absolutely yes. grow and thrive. And it can also be in alignment with one of these 17 goals that have Mm -hmm. been identified as how we're going to improve life on the planet for everyone. So, you know, it could be quality education, it could be Mm -hmm. no poverty, it could be there are any number of commercializable, you know, for profit opportunities that exist in alignment with those goals. And I think that's a really good sort of sanity check of sorts to make sure that what you're doing as a business is in alignment with. People who are your customers or your users or whatever, as well as with sort of society as a whole, and that you're you're moving us in a in a good direction. Mm.
0: Completely share that and completely share that quest. I think that's what it's about. You know, the, there's a spotlight on diversity, inclusion, equity, and belonging mm. today for a reason, because the human experience is coming more and more to the fore of of our processes and our our thought processes, but also of how we run our businesses. But today, what percentage? Do you see of large organizations actually taking that step to take responsible tech up to the strategic levers of their business purpose and and their organization in general? It's a conversation I used to have a lot about diversity and inclusion. It's now shifted massively, the thinking around it, but also the attention that it's getting from people for obvious reasons. And I feel like responsible tech is at that stage of it's not yet on the top table all the time. And I'm interested to have your inputs on where you see it and how you see it being handled
1: I think it's it is a mix you know I think like diversity equity, and inclusion, it is maybe has been more of a talking point than yeah. an actual plan of execution in many cases. I am of the belief that a talking point is a start though, and, and as long as you start getting the discourse in there and it starts being part of boardroom conversations and mm. executive room conversations. I, I think once, once that is actually happening, you're on the way to being better able to incorporate that into your planning. It's it's part of the discussions. It's going to start being part of how you, maybe not yet how you measure, maybe you're not building a robust model around it yet. It's a way in. And so I am encouraged to, to hear from executive leaders who are in audiences that I speak to or the clients that I work with, whenever they're they're curious about how mm. to use these models and frameworks to mm. to make better decisions and have greater clarity around the decisions that they're making. I think that's the piece the, the piece that really gets at the heart of what executive leaders are looking for so often is just clarity because it's just such an it's a challenging time to be making big decisions. and mm. I totally appreciate that. There's a lot going on. There are a lot of macro factors that that sort of make it feel very complicated. Mm. So, you know, just adding clarity, just adding, you know, some sense that we can make the decision-making a little more confident because we can use disciplined models to, you know, kind of review what's going on and consider the future, consider the changing technology landscape and make the best decisions for today that we can. And then what I, I like to call bankable foresights, you know, you get from this process, mm-hmm. the idea yeah. that there are foresights about what's coming that you don't need to act on today, but what they're there kind of telling you, this is, this is going to matter. This is the direction that we're heading in. Mm-hmm. And so you sort of start making decisions in accordance with those bankable foresights. Mm-hmm. And I think DE&I, Responsible Tech, so many of these movements are, are really part of that, that thankable foresight's area where you understand as a leader, that mm. that is increasingly important and that mm. increasingly your decisions have to reconcile with that. If we have that, then we're in, in better shape than not. Mm. Uh, but of course, the, the more we're able to actually model and actually move to those decisions and, and putting those decisions into practice, that's where, where I think we'll, we'll really see the most impact.
0: Yeah, and I think you know I like that idea of bankable Mm foresights. But if I come back to your Netflix example, Mm -hmm. there's also this question, isn't there, of personal agency, and wherever you sit in an organic. Well, we we spoke about accountability. I'm translating it into the the idea of personal agency because I discuss it quite a lot in terms of responsible tech and in terms of inclusion. And you know, everybody has agency in a system. So we're talking about an organisation, but society is the same for me Mm -hmm. to make their mark and to add value and to action those subjects. And so I think it's interesting as we look at how we deploy what we're strategizing about, whether it's responsible tech or inclusion or collaborative ecosystems or whatever, I think personal agency becomes, for me, more and more key. And as you get more clarity, of course, then then you can step into a space where you have personal agency, whether you're C-suite or not.
1: Right, true. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. It's one that I I think goes goes very nicely with this idea of elevating mm. that discourse yes. because a lot of times the elevated the discourse is being elevated from within, right? Yes. Like the uh, people who are individual contributors or you know who have the ear of managers or have the ear of executives, mm. you know that that kind of makes its way up, and it, and it's the trust that people down through the organization gain and garner by being truth tellers by by mm. by speaking truth to power but confronting with compassion right mm. and saying look we're not doing this well right now but we should be and here's how we could be you know and mm. i think that kind of conversation is incredibly valuable and it's sometimes the only real glimpse that leaders get into how things could be different or how things should be different if individuals within the organization have the courage to speak mm. up and and bring these issues up, that the things that they're seeing are important outside of the organization are not being mirrored inside the organization mm. and they should be. That is an incredibly important aspect of, of the whole equation. So yeah, yeah, thank you for that observation.
0: But because I think it's also around, you know, digital, that's very empowering what we've just discussed. Well, for me, it feels very empowering and digital can empower people very quickly. It can also disempower people and systems. I feel if we come back to the idea of using it as a scapegoat and working a little bit more transactionally, which brings me to my big question of the challenges you're seeing for the future with the way tech is evolving and the way us humans are, I was going to say adapting, are using it or adapting in some cases. But I think, you know, in the next five years, what are the biggest challenges you see in us creating a future so bright. I mean, I'm going to invite your listeners to read that book anyway. It's it's incredibly, incredibly insightful, but you know, what, how can we get there? And what are the biggest challenges for you? I, you know, I think there's a, there's a couple of
1: things that immediately surface in that question to me, when we think about what the biggest challenges for the next, however many years climate is certainly to me, the number one issue Mm. on that list and no other question sort of has any relevance without no, considering course. what we're doing relative to mm. climate. If we don't agree on that, of course, and if there are listeners out there who, who think I'm bananas for suggesting that, then, you know, then we don't agree and that's fine. But, mm. but I think we do have to start to come to some consensus that that's the priority. Then, then I think that we get the opportunity to say, look, AI, technology, all of these kinds of uh, discussions around, around emerging and evolving tech are really going to have an opportunity to be about furthering the kind of future we want, like mm. about you know climate res- resilience and about adaptation and about you know preparing us for the kind of things that we're going to need to face mm. in the future. There are some great examples in the book that my research team and I were able to find of you know, projects that that are very tech centric but they're very focused on how we live today and how we're mm. going to be living, you know, making sidewalks cooler and, and, mm. and, um, you know, a lot of tree related stuff. But then again, there's an overemphasis on tree related stuff in the climate space. You know, everybody's kind of very crossing their fingers and hoping mm-hmm. that planting enough trees, trees is going to do the yeah. trick and it's not. So we, no. we definitely need a much more rigorous approach. But I think in terms of the impact of of tech on jobs and mm-hmm. on the future of work is obviously one that's top of mind for many people. One we're going to have to get a lot crisper and clearer about, you know, talk about this with some some good vocabulary. Because one of the things I see happen is we talk about the future of work and what we're really talking about are a lot of things bundled into one. Like we, yeah. we don't differentiate the future of work as it relates to work, employment issues and issues of sort of the employer-employer contract, Mm. the Mm. sort of labor relations and that sort of thing versus the future of jobs and how individuals think about how they're going to make a contribution and earn a living and, you know, feel like they're accomplishing something and, you know, have a career path of some sort. Mm. That's a very different conversation, one that obviously has a lot of overlap. Yeah. But it also has a lot of overlap with the future of education. Of course. And, you know, what we're doing to prepare people for a lifetime of learning and of relearning skills and being sure that we can adapt and learn new skills to be continually relevant and mm-hmm. making a contribution where we want to make a contribution. Also, of course, dovetails with the future of money and value and how we think about, you know, what gets valued and how we. Develop economies uh, around things like cloud own, like cloud ownership of concepts or of Mm. of this kind of sense that all of the data is just out there and it's out there to be monetized and we don't own it or or whatever. There's a lot of decisions and discussions Mm. to be had here around universal basic income or around data ownership, uh, around you know many of these kinds of things. But I think it's unwieldy and it's difficult to have. All of those conversations at once. Of course. Still, I think it's important that we acknowledge that that's a very, very complex interrelationship between all of those, or else we will miss the point and we won't have
0: a rigorous enough conversation about them. Mm. Mm. And what was the most surprising thing that came out of your research for you, Kate, on this on this subject of trends for the future?
1: What was the most surprising? It's a great question, an interesting one. I think it just continued to be surprised, I suppose, at how many people find the idea of optimism surprising, surprising. right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a funny thing to me. Uh, you know, when I, when I present about this, when I speak about this at conferences, everybody is very sort of hopeful and expectant about what I'm going to say. And I think they're often surprised that my message is not one of pure unbridled optimism. I mean, mm. obviously it can't be like, there's no, mm. there's no world in which we don't see these problems. Like we, of course there are problems, but you know, that's why I use the phrase strategic optimism. Mm. I think that word strategic is doing a lot of heavy lifting in front yeah. of the word optimism. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we very much needs strategy. We need a, an approach that is intellectually rigorous and that is very much informed by every meaningful question that we can ask about mm. how we're trying to go about building this brighter future. Mm. Uh, I don't think we can afford to look away from no. awkward or uncomfortable or un- truths.
0: Mm.
1: And I don't think we can afford to be pessimistic. I don't think we can afford to have a bad attitude about it and say like, well, shoot, everything's just doomed from here. You know, like mm. that's not helpful. What no. is helpful is to say, Huh, it's looking pretty doomed if we let it keep going that way. Exactly. But starting today, we're mm-hmm. not going to let it keep going that way. We're dragging that possible <laughs> future back into the realm of fixable, mm. and you know something that we can at least make an improvement on. There's mm. a lot that's already you know horses out of the barn, and we're not going to be able to fix fully. Mm related to climate, related to data modeling, as you talked about algorithmic bias, you know, there are many, many things that are just baked into the way that we're going Mm -hmm. to be experiencing the future, but not everything. And we still have very much a chance to impact the future in a much more positive way starting today, every day. And so Mm -hmm. I really hope that that's a message that people can take away from, from my book, from my work, Mm -hmm. this conversation. Mm -hmm. And, and perhaps it's surprising to people to walk away from uh, this conversation feeling a little more hopeful and a little more sense of empowerment and agency. And if so, I, I hope that you act on it.
0: Yeah. And I think that's important, isn't it? My, my next question would be, what what is the biggest opportunity you see for all as optimists who are getting quite curious and excited about what we could do? <laughs> what's the biggest, when I say opportunity, like transformative opportunity that you see from your research, from your thinking and from your experience with working with clients on how we can have impact?
1: You know, normally I think I would, I would say to that it, a question like that, my answer would probably be, you know, alignment with the SDGs. And we, mm-hmm. but we've we already talked about that. I think that's a, a, a very, very useful opportunity and, and one that's incredibly powerful. Mm-hmm. But another thing has occurred to me, which I think, could be a hopeful one for for listeners. And that is that I think a big opportunity is for us to really invest in building trust with one another and and trying to figure out how to repair some of the division that's happened over Mm. the the last few years, especially. I think most of us feel that the sense that there's been growing divisiveness in politics. There's been growing divisiveness in sort of cultural discourse mm-hmm. and that we feel that most online, you know, sort yes. of in, in, well, maybe in, in traditional media as well, but, but certainly social media, you know, yep. because of yep. algorithmic amplification and, and what we, Eli Pariser referred to as the filter bubble back in 2011 yes. is now sort of like, you know, your whole entire Both. universe yeah. uh, surrounds you and you cannot get out. That opportunity really comes from interacting in person with people, mm. or you mm. know, ch- kind of choosing the the chance to to approach people, have conversations. You know, challenge yourself to hear people and learn their point of view. I think that opportunity is is really one that could make transformative differences in our mm. future. I fear for what happens if we don't, yes, if we don't absolutely. confront that moment, mm. and if we if we don't retrain ourselves or train ourselves anew for mm. how to build trust in an environment where
0: it is so constantly being eroded by systems. Mm. And, and would that be your answer to my next question, which is around leadership? In... I'm getting ahead of all your questions. Yeah, I know. Uh, great minds. No, but uh, leadership, particularly in organizations. So leaders who are listening to this thinking, mm. okay, I want to either become more of a tech humanist, or I would like to start thinking about how me and my team could step into that space of tech humanism, what would be the most important leadership skill that you would be advising them to develop? So I've heard trust, and I'm not mm-hmm. sure whether that's the answer to this question or whether it's something different.
1: Yeah, I think that, you know, we we alluded to it earlier in the sense that people inside an organization surfacing ideas and, yeah. and concerns to leaders, that must be listened to. That must be something that people are able to bring uh, yeah. into an organization without fear of, of repercussion that's inappropriate. I mean, mm. if obviously, if we're talking about crossing lines, you know, there's, there's uh, that's not part of what I'm discussing. I'm talking about people bringing genuine concern uh, about how things are being addressed or about diversity not being truly represented and, and people not feeling safe. Yeah. One of the things I found very interesting, I just I just came back a little while ago from uh, London from the Thinkers Fifty Awards. Oh, yes. One of the things that was very interesting to me was that the number one thinker this year and I think last year, is Amy Edmondson, Edmondson. whose work is is uh, she's famous for her work mm-hmm. on psychological safety. And I thought, what a interesting tell about what's important in the moment in this moment that the the leading management thinker is famous for an idea that is about psychological safety, like in the workplace, thinking about how is it that you're making decisions in your workplace that are creating the environment where someone can feel psychologically safe, that they can feel like they can, you know, disagree, Mm -hmm. agree to disagree with coworkers or bring up, you know, moments of, of concern that we're not following the right path, that there are bigger issues here and we're not addressing them. You know, Mm -hmm. things like that are incredibly important for this complex moment that we're in. And it's an incredibly important opportunity for leaders to learn to listen and learn to create those kinds of environments. And who better to learn from than Amy Edmondson? So I'm going to direct everyone to her work as well.
0: Yes, Yes, I I share that. I share that in terms of her work on psychological safety and also on the recent work she's done on failing intelligently, which sort of builds on the psychological safety block. I, I just think that, that's key to creating conditions, whether you're leading a community, a family, you know, an organization or a department. Yeah. Kate, time is running. I, I would have one last question though. Would you have a last call to action for our listeners who are thinking, mm, so I understand this. I do some of this. How can I scale this thinking in my, in my organization or in my community?
1: Yeah, that, that's a, such an important word and concept you bring up because that is Really, at the end of the day, so much of these emerging and evolving technologies are about Mm. the scale that they bring, right? Mm. The capacity and scale Mm. that they bring. And I think it's a powerful call to us to think about what it is we'd like to scale, what it is we'd like to, you know, given the superpower of unbridled capacity and scale, (laughs) what would you like to scale in the world? And I think it still comes back to that founding question, that sort of starting point of what is it that you exist to do as an organization and what would you like to do at scale? Mm. And I think if you can honestly answer those questions, you can really have a very profound discussion with your team, with your executive team, with your board, within your organization. If you're an individual contributor or a middle manager, Mm. this is still a conversation that would be very valuable to have with your colleagues, with your reports, and and those you report to, the clearer we can get organizationally about that, the better chance we have of making decisions that are better for humanity, that that are responsible with technology, Mm. that do move us in a better direction. Mm. And I think that opportunity to to bring the concept of scale into that decision-making also means that we take less chances at scaling unintended consequences, which happen All too often. Yeah. So the, having that sense of sort of bigness and, and breadth to, to our decision making, I think can feel intimidating. Mm. You know, it can certainly make the decision feel like, oh great, now it's even more complicated. I have even more at stake with this decision. But I think that's it's a healthy respect for what is actually at scale or what is actually in scope. Mm. with the decision making today. So, uh, mm. an important an important lens on that. I have a lot of tools and frameworks uh, available for that decision making on on my website koinsights.com. People can find a lot of those there. And and I hope it helps. I hope that the book helps, but I think that you can get 80% of the way there just asking that question of your you and your team, what is it that we exist to do as an organization and what is it we're trying to scale?
0: Excellent. Thank you. I'm going to leave our listeners with those inquiry questions for sense making uh, around what are we scaling and how do we scale it. Kate, thank you so much for coming and sharing your insights, your research, your thinking. I was going to ask you, where can we find out more about you and what you do, but you've <laughs> already given your website and the, re- the resources you have on it. Is there any other places that people can connect with you or is that the best place? That's the best place. Uh, You know, uh, you can
1: find me on LinkedIn being very active there, but um, you you can also find a link to LinkedIn from my website. So it's a good starting point, koinsights.com.
0: Okay, koinsights.com, done deal. All right, thank you. Thanks for a great conversation, Kate. Thank you very much.